0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 640th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who focuses on leveraging micro-landscapes into ecosystem changes. We're talking with Zach Lokes about edible ecosystems in a nutshell. Zach is an educator, designer, and grower who specializes in edible ecosystem design through landscaping and education. He manages an award-winning farm, with diversified food forest products, heirloom garlic, and a hardy tree nursery. He is also the director of Ecosystem Solution Institute, which is dedicated to the education, propagation, and inspiration of ecosystem solutions for land use transition. The Institute oversees path-breaking education sites, including an edible biodiversity conservation area near Ottawa, Ontario, and a suburban food forest in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He is also the author of several books, including The Permaculture Market Garden and The Edible Ecosystem Solution. Welcome to the show today, Zach. You're ready to rock?
1: You betcha. Rock and roll.
0: Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us? And share more about the path you took to get where you're at today.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm, you know, I've kind of have a a diverse background. I, like i had mentioned to you before, I, I grew up on a permaculture homestead. And I eventually ended up doing studies in natural resource management at university and sort of got really into the science behind our environment and ecosystem. And then I started a farm and was commercial market gardener for many years. And at a certain point, I started to realize, I had this sort of epiphany that the way that I was managing the land wasn't in sync with a lot of the permaculture background I had as a child, and I used to be a landscaper, you know, in my early years as well, or this science that I knew and understood about the environment and about ecosystems from my years at university and doing research projects. And so I started to marry that into the way I was farming and the way that I was growing. Mm-hmm. And this sort of started a whole motion in my life of reconnecting these sort of techniques of permaculture with the practicality of farming, you know, the need for efficiency, the need for uh-huh. yield, the need for profitability. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. brought me to where, you know, we're, we're at right now.
0: Awesome. And so interestingly, you said you grew up on a permaculture project
1: yeah like where i grew up in santa fe new mexico we had permaculture property a homestead uh-huh. just outside of actually i think we we're i think we were just inside the city limits, so i'm not sure that everything we did mm. was, was uh,
0: <laughs> on the was up culture so to speak yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: so, we were like right on the edge
0: so when when i got the note that you were going to be on the podcast it was like for me hmm i wonder and so when we got on the phone a little while ago i asked if uh, Dirk was your father. Now, actually, I think I asked if Dirk was related to you and you said, yeah, that was my dad. Well, so we have an interesting connection. Dirk was my one of my permaculture teachers at my first permaculture design course, which was really cool. And so we chatted about that before we started recording. And you said people are calling you second generation permaculturist, which, yeah, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, as I delved more into the realm of education, people, yeah, people started to you know, mentioned that background, which I guess I had sort of taken for granted that I grew up with exposure to a lot of the design philosophies of permaculture mm-hmm. and of, you know, edible landscape design and micro farming. But yeah, no. My dad was a was a teacher, and a, like I had mentioned to a, to you before, you know, my brother and I used to go around on job sites with him when we were kids, and I, you know, put in swales and plant trees, and uh-huh. you know, it was a lot of dry dry landscaping. Oh yeah, because we were in you know northern New Mexico, so a lot of water management, and and you know, it's really held with me. Like I, I have a lot of you know, really intensive solutions on my farm and on projects that I designed that have a lot to do with water. And even though, you know, right now we're having a lot of rain where I am in Ontario, but
0: uh-huh. I
1: still have built into me that sense of, you know, we've got to save water and, and redistribute it when we need it. And so I work a lot with roof catchment on, on farms and a lot with, you know, mulching strategies and polyculture to help create micro climates within the, the fields and plots and you know i so yeah i guess you know there's the benefit to the, the being the next generation is right. is that that mentorship you know which which i i, I believe is a, is a powerful ally in life yeah
0: opinion. so this background must have given you a lot of fodder for discovering a philosophy around permaculture and what we do tell me about that
1: yeah for sure i think you know i believe a lot in the terms and the words that we use you know, I'm, I'm a writer and, and a thinker, and I, I like words and what they mean. And I think throughout my life and throughout the journey I've had in relation to permaculture and in relation to organic farming and landscape design and natural resource management, there's been certain words that have kind of come up in my use over, over the years that have helped kind of define my philosophy. And right now I really, you know, feel strong about the term edible biodiversity, the feeling of biodiversity, you know, all that life, the sum of all life, you know, all that, all that moves and, and grows and, and creates and everything from the soil microorganisms to the, you know, the tallest trees. Mm -hmm. And the idea of putting edible in front of that, And the moment we think of edible and we think of something that we can eat, Mm. it really it's so important to humans. Like, is there really anything more, in a way than those foods that we eat? And then when we put the word biodiversity, which is this, this, this epic word, you know, this word of epic proportions, and we say, wow, like the sum of all of the edible entities on this planet, you know, and I even like to say, you know, edible and useful diversity. And so for me, my philosophy is that true human habitat is edible diversity. This is really wow. our habitat as a human as human species. You know, this is our habitat. We we evolved from these wild ancestral ecosystems and we were always attracted to places of high diversity and high edible and useful diversity. Right? And this, yeah, right. Like this was the basis of our migration, the basis of our settlement, the basis of our technological development, the basis of our, our 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 social norms and our well-being as a society. And a lot of this comes out in my in my recent book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution, which sort of tracks this journey, what we can do about it in the future to create this true human habitat. And so I think that is that's a cornerstone of my philosophy right now is this feeling of, you know, rebuilding and the and continuation. I don't even believe that we need to go back to the past, but, mm-hmm. but rather we haven't quite even found our stride as stewards of an edible, abundant, and biodiverse habitat all around us.
0: Wow. So really what you're doing here is you're taking this whole notion of edible landscape to a whole new level.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, I'm I'm definitely taking the idea of edible landscaping and moving it to a a level beyond sort of a a stagnant landscape that just replaces ornamentals, rather a sense of creating habitat, creating Mm -hmm. community. What do we want to be surrounded by in our communities? You know, the the flushes of all sorts of diverse flowers and, you know, all the songs of the birds and the butterflies and the bees. And, you know, what does this do for our well-being? you know, we we have all this research coming out about forest bathing and the benefits for anxiety and depression mm, and, and right. so many health benefits. What are the health benefits of food forest bathing? And what does it mean to be able to do that right out your front door in communities <laughs> that have been transitioned right? to edible biodiversity? Yeah. And what does it mean to bathe in an old growth food forest? That just blows my mind. You know, what drives me right now? I think that was Something that I maybe a, a question that was coming up was what drives me is the, is this feeling of putting down the foundations for what one day will be old growth food forests right wow. where people live right where we exist where we can interact with them all the time.
0: What does that look like? What define an old growth food forest? What is, give me some ideas of what that means?
1: It means that that when you go into a landscape that's an old-growth food forest, you have not only the plants that have been planted by humans when it was originally planted, say, the pear tree, the plum, the bee balm, the echinacea, the anise hyssop, the creeping tendrils of peas and runner beans, but an old-growth food forest is not just what has been planted, but it is the progeny of the great-great-grandpapa and great-great-grandmama trees and plants that have left their seeds, that have sent out their suckers, what we end up with is an ecosystem that is completely complex with layered diversity from large trees down to creeping ground covers. And many of them are very old. You can have, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500-year-old fruit trees. And so you have this structure of these old-growth trees and plants that maybe they were originally planted by humans, but you also have all the progeny. You have all the seeds from these plants that have been mm. dropped. You have the rhizomes mm. that have spread. And you have the extension of the gene pool from all the cross pollination. So you have, you know, true ecosystem dynamics, but with plants that are exceedingly meaningful for humans. And with, you know, myriad benefits for the surrounding environment and the surrounding ecology, But also, these are primarily the plants that humans nurtured, the biodiversity that we made in sync with natural systems. These are Asian pears, and these are mulberries. These are, you know, walnuts and pecans, and they have heritage and desirable traits that we've carried forward for generations and generations and we're blending them and letting them go wild and letting them discover the next site suitable varieties within this ecosystem landscape. So an old growth food forest is one that is, you know, both large and immense, like you might imagine like an old growth forest in, say, the rainforests of Brazil or the rainforests of British Columbia. Right. Right. So but at the same time, that immensity is underlined by this even more beautiful thing, which is the the genome, the the gene pool, the complexity of cross-pollination that's happening, the complexity of dispersal that's happening. And ultimately what this means is resilience for humanity and resilience for all of these varieties and all the life that depends upon them.
0: Wow, th- that is absolutely brilliant. As you're sharing about this notion of an old-growth edible landscape. First of all, did you come up with that concept?
1: I only heard it in writing it down, but I believe that all things that strike true to anyone are ideas that are universally
0: true. Yeah, amen, amen. So
1: I believe that our ancestors evolved in old-growth food forests, and in all of us. There's this yearning, this yearning to get back to this true human habitat.
0: I know, did, when and you, this
1: doesn't mean that we're, you know, running around in the woods, you know, half naked chasing boars.
0: No, like, not at all.
1: You can have your That You know, the world is full of underutilized landscapes that mm-hmm. are just crying out to be diversified. It's, well, it's really a blank page out there.
0: Right. Well, and as you're sharing about that, I've lived on my property for 30, almost 33 years. I've studied permaculture on this property for 30 of those 33 years. And I've been, you know, implementing permaculture design for that long. And when you're sharing about this notion of an old growth edible landscape, I'm thinking about my front yard, which at any given moment has carrots and parsley and cilantro and basil and oregano and celery and nasturtiums. And I could go on and on and on of plants that just come back every year. Sweet potatoes. That's it. They just... And so as you're sharing about this, it's like, holy shirt, Batman, that's what I've done here at the Urban Farm, (laughs) is I've created a landscape that just self-perpetuates, and it's an old growth. It's been this way for 20, 25 years, which,
1: wow, that's it.
0: This is one of the reasons, this is what I, I, as you can tell, I'm excited. This is one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because first of all, I get to learn. Secondly, I get to bring people like you in front of tens of thousands of people with concepts like this, that really, this is rocking my day.
1: Well, I'm so glad, you know, and it's really is something, there's really nothing more beautiful than say walking at your front door And in the trip to the car or just to the mailbox or just because you're outside, there's fresh fruits that are just proffering themselves up on trees. And there's blossoms that, you know, you're inhaling. You walk through a patch of mint and lemon balm and you're (laughs) inhaling the aromatic oil that are being sold at top dollar, you know, in malls all across America. You know, so we have we have all that at our these landscapes like this, like what you've been doing and what we're doing and what so many amazing people are already doing. So it's just like building on this momentum more and more and transitioning all of these spaces that are just just waiting for it. You know, these uh, little cookie cutter plots that are everywhere. You know, I like to say that we have underutilized land everywhere because Most of the land in our communities is lawn. So that's a monoculture or in our farms, it's, you know, one crop. So that's a monoculture. So that's a form of underutilized land or it's, you know, compacted or, um, you know, excessive amounts of gray space, gray landscape. So that's underutilized and it's never layered as well as you might see. So we have, say, ornamental trees in urban areas, but there's not a lot of layering underneath. There's just the, the one canopy layer. And usually it takes the tree dying before it's replaced, but we can actually layer sub canopies of fruit trees and berries and herbs underneath these aging city trees to create a successional layer and one that's much more biodiverse, edible, and useful. So there's another form of kind of maximizing these, these underutilized green spaces.
0: Wow. And so let's actually touch on that. Layers. What does that mean?
1: This is one of the most fun concepts, and certainly when I when I teach, you know, I, I run workshops all over the place, and then we have an online school as well, Ecosystem U. And one of the best concepts that people love, of course, is the concept of layering, because it's so tangible to think about the layers that exist in a wild ecosystem. Whether you're talking about an ecosystem like the tall grass prairie or an ecosystem like a temperate woodland or an ecosystem like a savanna or a tropical rainforest, there's layers, different layers that exist within that ecosystem. And we're really talking about the shape and size of the plants in that wild system. So say you take the temperate woodland around where I am in Ontario, you know, in the upper stories of the woodlands, you have really large sugar maples and red maples and oaks and basswood and beech. And then underneath it, you have a sub canopy of smaller trees like ironwood and cherry, wild cherry. And then under that, you'll even have a shrub layer of and and we have that you know layers of bushes like you know wild raspberries and wild currant and gooseberries and then there's creeping crawling layers and and so what's interesting is that you know even though in our wild ecosystems there's certainly edible food out there you know we talk about wild crafting and going on finding wild foods and you know many ecosystems will proffer up nuts and and berries but we can mimic these layers in an in landscape design with domestic heirloom fruits and berries and herbs. So they're even more abundant, even more useful for uh, our communities. Mm -hmm. But we can create designs where we have larger trees integrated with medium-sized trees, with shrubs, with berries, with herbs. And with proper patterning, we actually end up with designs that are abundant and diverse, but they're also efficient. And that's where I really feel like the work that we're doing at the Ecosystem Solution Institute is really taking a turn for something great. It's marrying the diversity and the permaculture principles with really efficient design. Design that could be approachable to a farmer on thousands of acres Mm -hmm. as much as to an urban dweller with 25 square feet. Design that gives you diversity but gives you efficiency and potential for profit. And so it can be a design that could be applied to green spaces in city parks and able to work within the system that they have. Because when we try to break the system of management, say, you know, how people mow and how they take care of land, if we try to go too far away from it, it's no longer approachable and right. then it won't succeed in transitioning that land. If you go yep. up to a farmer on thousands of acres and say, Yeah, well if you get rid of all your equipment and completely change what you're doing, then it'd be great. That doesn't work. <laughs> we right. have to find solutions that are able to little by little create the transitions that help farmers be more profitable, that help landscapes be, you know, easier to maintain, you know, that help and all the while, you know, being biodiverse and abundant and edible and resilient. But putting that profitability, that organization, that efficiency, and marrying it to that beauty, that resilience, that sustainability, this is really the work that, that just gets me up and going in the morning.
0: I can tell, man. <laughs> so you said a couple of things that I, I want to unpack a little bit. Let's start with patterning. You use the word patterning. Mm-hmm. What give, give us an idea of what that means?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, You know, for anyone who's ever, like I say, knitted or done weaving or laid tile or beaded, it's that feeling of unique placeholders. Like if you're tiling and you have six inch square tiles and you have spaces to tile this long walkway Uh and you say, "Okay, well, I have enough spaces here for 24 six inch by six inch tiles. Mm -hmm. So then you have options. You can put a gray tile and then you can put a brown tile and then a gray tile. Or you could put a gray tile and then a brown tile and then a red tile and then a brown tile and then a gray tile and then repeat. So the moment that we have placeholders, that we have a a unique feature that is repeated, we can start to create patterns. And then we can imbue these spaces with whatever ecology, whatever variety of plant we want, and yet it's organized. So on larger landscapes, I use permabeds. These are permanent raised garden beds made out of earth they're usually about six to eight inches high they're between four to five feet wide and they're never deep tilled and they always have a permanent place in space they stay fixed in the location Uh so if you have a farm of you know five ten acres then you can have these repeated and you can actually choose to take a single bed and plant it into trees and then the other beds could be in annual vegetables or crop and then another bed so you can choose every fifth bed is going in this or every 10th bed is going in this. But then within a bed, and this is where this really starts to apply to more micro landscapes and suburban and urban areas as well, is within a single bed, you can imagine every five feet as a landscape spot. And that's really the basis of design for me as a five by five spot, 25 square feet. Mm-hmm. And within mm-hmm. that spot, you can choose what mixture of plants you might have. And what is the key species in this five by five spot? And what are you designing around? Are you designing around a key species that is a nut tree, a large tree in that layering of of an ecosystem? Or is the key species a fruit tree, that medium-sized tree? Or is it a berry bush? Or are you really orienting around a single herb? And if you're choosing that key species, then within the length of that bed, you can create patterns around those key species so that this could be a long bed along your driveway and you could have a key species of an herb and then a ground cover and then a fruit tree and then an herb and then a ground cover and then a nut tree and then an herb and then a ground cover and then a fruit tree and that pattern can repeat so that you get this maximizing of the photosynthesis in that area. Mm -hmm. And all of the benefits when you have that diversity as they start to companion. So the ground covers are creeping and, you know, keeping the soil cool and they're preventing erosion. And you have herbs that are providing pollinator habitat and the fruit trees, which are producing fruit, but you've done it through creating a pattern. Each of those 25 square spots are a tile and you can choose the color.
0: Wow. And you're just mixing and matching in what in permaculture we call guilds, right? Right.
1: That's it. It's a, it's, a, it's a system of guild design that, and allows people to really start to approach guild design because I feel like a lot of what I, I, feedback I've heard over the years is that people love guild design. They love these ideas, but they also really intimidate intimidated in terms of like how to actually go about it. And so when we simplify things and we start to say, well, first of all, just make sure that you never have two plants adjacent to each other that are the same size. So in a way, the simplest form of the design that I apply to landscapes is big, very small, small, very small, medium. And then I just reapply that.
0: Oh, interesting. I
1: reapply that so that we're always dissimilar, right adjacent, because then there's less competition and more companionship. And if you apply that as a primary principle, all of a sudden it's sort of it sort of becomes a lot more approachable to people because there's not a lot of bad design out there ultimately, as long as you come at it from an organized perspective and then you can learn and grow with it. But we don't want to jumble, you know, a bunch of fruit trees too close together, right. you know, yep. and we want stuff to breathe, but you know, it works really well. So you put a fruit tree in and then you put time and then you go up a little bit. It's kind of like those little peaks, you know, in a in a, yep. in a graph, Right. So you have a fruit tree, so that's big. And then you go really small to a ground cover. And then you go up a little bit to like chives. And then go right back down to the ground cover like thyme, And then go up a little more this time to like maybe a current. And go right down to a ground cover, maybe like violets. And then go up a little bit more, maybe not chives this time. How about bee balm? What the heck? And then go right back down to right. a ground cover like strawberries. And then go, hmm, let's go back up to a fruit tree now, you know? So it's just that alternating wow. of the pattern.
0: Man, you're wanting me to start a new farm here.
1: <laughs> well, that's it. I, well, I want to go
0: play with this. Easy, man. That could
1: be a that could be a great project. You know, this is what we do with the institute. So if you find some land and you're interested in doing something innovative, then we can collaborate because this is our jam, man.
0: Like, wow. <laughs> cool. Well, and y'all heard that invitation there.
1: That that's it. This is what we do. So we're we're really into finding places and people and sites where there could be a core group of stewards and they're interested in not just creating an edible landscape or a micro farm, but they're interested in creating one that is going to act as a catalyst point for education and propagation and inspiration. And this is sort of the call to action in my most recent book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution. Is, it's a step-by-step guide to how to design 25 square feet from scratch, but then it's a call to action to how to leverage these small spaces as points to help create change, that these beautiful spaces sort of naturally, you know, especially if they're designed a little more to do so, they naturally are able to help transition more spaces around them. And a neat example of that is the words that we choose for these sites, which is education, propagation, inspiration, or EPI sites. And if you have a site that's beautiful, let's say it's just 25 square feet and has a guild with pear and a berry and some herbs, if someone approaches the site and looks at it, they're going to be inspired automatically because it'll be so beautiful. They're going to taste the fruit and they're going to be inspired to to maybe have this in their yard. And then because it's well-designed and there's a steward there, they can actually be educated immediately about how to go about reproducing a similar micro landscape in their piece of land that they steward. Wow. And that's the education component. Yeah. But because ecosystems spread naturally, <laughs> they actually self-propagate, and humans are amazing propagators too. So you literally can cut scion wood, graft and create a new pear tree, divide the raspberry and and share a sucker, save the seeds from the bee bomb, divide the chives, and you can then provide the material. So the site inspired the neighbor; it educated the neighbor. And it propagated the material for the neighbor. And that's everything that's needed to then replicate an identical site. And if the site's doing well after two, three, four, five years, it means that it's site suitable. It means that it's a regionally successful guild and ought to be spread, ought to be dispersed, ought to be shared with the community. And so this is what this is what it means to be an EPI site. It's to be a site that is, that is more than an edible landscape or a micro farm. It's a site that is a catalyst. Creating more edible biodiversity around
0: us. Wow. So I, I just have to stop you here. Not that I want to stop you, but I have to say <laughs> first of all, I'm getting chills all the way down to my toes at this moment. And I have studied permaculture for over 30 years, I have implemented permaculture for most of that time in projects. I have interviewed over 600 people on our podcast. And I have to tell you that this is one of the most innovative, groundbreaking breakthrough concepts that I've ever seen. Well,
1: I, you know, I'm glad to hear it. Wow. I really am. And, in, and <laughs> I, I won't take that lightly. And, and I, like I was saying earlier, is like what the way I feel about these sort of things is that, like, your excitement around it is case in point. Yeah. It probably hits you in your sinew because it's there, man. Oh, it is. I right?
0: mean, I'm still getting chills. Like, it's like, wow. It's self
1: evident because it's in you. It's in all of us. Yeah. It just makes sense, you know, because it's it, this is the way that an ecosystem works. Yeah. An ecosystem that is successful, that is useful to the the you know the the animals and creatures around it, it disperses, it spreads, it proliferates, you know. Yeah. And humans are huge dispersers. We're huge land shifters. So as we start to shift back and remember that we actually feel better surrounded by edible biodiversity, (laughs) we can be immense makers of change. The moment we start to get the tipping point to actually putting all of this great innovation and power that is human kind towards creating edible biodiversity to really finding our stride as stewards. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about just a, an amazing shift in our, our communities, our green spaces, but our economy, our social values, the, and our resilience in the face of, of climate change and in the, in the face of anything else that might come along, you know? Wow.
0: Oh my gosh. So where do people find your book?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's available wherever books are sold. I always say, you know, bring it in at your local bookstore if you can. It's available online. You can get it from us at the Institute for sure. It's available on our website. You can get it from my publisher, New Society Publishers, all of the above.
0: What's your website?
1: So the Institute has a shop where the book can be picked up, and that's EcosystemSolutionInstitute.com. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Wow. Well, you know, we could go on talking forever and I just, you know, we can't stop the clock as my friend Romy says. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it.
1: I mean, I like to think that that most of, you know, the solutions that I've created and we built in the Institute, they've all sort of come from little failures. You know, this is I like to use the words obstacles and solutions and that, you know, we're always running into obstacles. Say when I was when I was running the market garden or, you know, on the farm now we're running into obstacles or when I'm doing a landscape job, I'm running into some obstacle and then you can find that solution. So too much water, you know, could be this terrible obstacle in, you know, an area. It's like poor drainage. But with a shift, you can, you know, turn that into a pond. Right, you know, and then right. that becomes then that becomes a solution, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, the real big aha moment when I when I wrote my first book, The Permaculture Market Garden, was when I would go out and in the spring, and I would just look at these bare fields. It just felt like I was starting from scratch every year. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I was like, oh, I have got to like rediscover where the weed pressure is bad, and and kind of rediscover where it's wet in the spring, but you know, where it's dry in the fall and just, I was like, I have been farming this land for years and, and yet somehow there's, it's unfamiliar still to me, you know? And that was just like, there was, you know, points of failure there, I guess, you know, but obstacles, as I say. And that's where I really started to generate the the basis of the permabed system, where I took land and I fixed its place in space and I gave it a placeholder. So all of a sudden, all the land that I stewarded became those placeholders for tiles, became those placeholders for chosen diversity. And because of that, it became placeholders that I began to become more familiar with. You know, once you give a permanence to landscape then you can say well this is where it's wet and this is where it's dry. Yeah. And you know you can you can you know put in the melons in the in the area where it'll be wet through the summers cuz they'll suck up the moisture. Yes. You know and you can put in put in trees that are going to enjoy the the dry where it's dry and they'll have good drainage and that familiarity can come in there. So I I am guilty of over tilling soil. I'm guilty of of overusing various inputs like organic pesticides in my, in my production, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm guilty of, of, you know, I'm guilty of, uh, of taking for granted, you know, the energy that it, that requires to maintain land and like, you know, over, you know, overbooking, you know, things like that. And, and through that those challenges, that's where a lot of these systems came from, you know? So I, I, you know, I like this question because I do believe that, we need to encourage everyone, you know, ourselves, our children, to to fail, you know, <laughs> so, you know, to right? to go out there because if you, you know if you don't try and you don't trip, then you don't understand how to pick yourself up and and I guess my big you know feeling is that that's that's a big part of innovation and a yeah. big part of moving forward.
0: You know, in sixty years of being on the planet, I've noticed that people that fail more, and this is why I asked this question, but that people that fail more are more well-rounded, they're more resilient, and oftentimes they're more successful.
1: Mm, yeah. Not well, curious? that's it. I mean, yeah. it, it, that's it. You learn. You like. Right. You learn. If you don't cut your finger, you don't learn how to hold a knife.
0: You know? All <laughs> right. Well, there you go. So what That's do
1: you, something I learned from my dad. <laughs> uh, there you
0: go. We're going to talk <laughs> about early your dad in a little lesson. while. Yeah. Uh, so what do you consider your biggest success?
1: Probably my kids just to take, keep it, keep it near home. You know, I, I feel like balancing work and life and family and all these things. And I really believe in mentorship, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm really working to mentor my kids in a way that allows them to benefit from mentorship, which I feel like is a lost art in a way. Yeah. And yet not make them feel that they have to be their parents, that, mm-hmm. they, that they can take and learn from what we have to offer, because that's a powerful tool. The, the leg up that you can have as a, as a growing child by being past the legacy of your parents' knowledge is so important, but then showing them how that can transfer into many different things in their lives. You know, that the understanding of design can be applied in many ways from, from me, for instance. So I, I think that, you know, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm seeing my kids grow up to be strong, determined little souls that are taking. I don't know. I guess it just struck me about the other day when, when my eldest daughter literally like looked at me and was like excited about something. And she was like, "Yeah, Dad, like mentorship." And I was like, "Yeah,
0: yeah, nice." like, "Win." Big win. You know. So we already <laughs> so, we already kind of touched on this, but what drives you?
1: Yeah, what drives me is I like looking out and seen the landscapes around become just so beautiful and yeah. so abundant and so biodiverse. You know, I really just, every time I go back to a site that I've designed or a site that I've been to before, or a site I've never been to. And I go to, you know, and I see it being biodiverse and abundant and I'm just like, Oh, this is so great. Like I want to see more of this in a world. You know, I just want to see more, more, what I call high impact trees, trees that are located where people live, that are site suitable and just giving all sorts of benefits to that community, you know, and that's it. You know, I, I've planted thousands of of trees in my life and, and plan to plant thousands more. And, and that's, that's, that drives me, you know, to put those trees
0: in. Amen. And I am really excited to ask you this next question. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. I have so many books I love. You know, a a book that I read very early on, and I have to almost reread it because I can't even quite remember all the messages, but I just, it really was impactful for me is is the book, The Education of Little Tree, And it's Mm. just the story of this boy. And I believe, I think it's his grandfather, you know, he kind of ends up going to live with a a distant relative and, and just being taught some of the old ways, you know? And I think there's just this one passage there where he's contemplating like a spider's web out in this field, and I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's one of these little books, and I love these beautiful little books, you know, that are short and sweet. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I mean, I just, I really love that book, you know.
0: Excellent. And so, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: A good piece of advice I like to give to people—it's kind of like my go-to consult advice—but I'll, I'll give it here as, uh, as my, my parting my parting wisdom i guess is when you simplify with whatever your goals are your vision for your land you end up achieving more
0: Isn't so that the if case? you're
1: a farm yeah right if, so if you're a farm and you want to you know diversify and become more resilient and but instead of doing everything cuz like i'll hear people and they'll, they'll wanna you know have goats and chickens and and an orchard and bees and like every cool thing you could possibly do on the land right so but when you simplify and pick say 3 I have this thing I call the rule of three. You just pick three enterprises for your farm. Mm-hmm. Then you end up really succeeding because each of these enterprises requires time and skill and yes. money and, and energy, you know, and it's the same for the homestead or for the home garden. Even it could be, it could be on a smaller scale and you could just say, oh, I really want to start gardening and I want to do really well and I want this beautiful garden. And I would say, essentially pick three enterprises, three projects for your you know, your farm or your homestead, or it could be as simple in a home garden of just picking three vegetables to grow that year, you know, and to really hone in and focus on them and do them glorious justice, just really succeed in growing them. And, you know, create connections in your community, trade, barter for other, other vegetables that year, and be really proficient in those that you chose to grow you know have the best watermelons and the best sweet yes. carrots and the best salad mix that year you know Yep. and then you can crop rotate and the next year you can grow three different vegetables which can actually save you a kind of conundrum in small spaces where how do you crop rotate when you know many crops like say potatoes you need to crop rotate them a thousand feet to really avoid too much potatoes from one year to the next so It's hard to achieve that in small areas. So in a way, you can succeed this way by simplifying. But I just have found throughout everything that when you simplify and if you apply this rule of three, like if you ask me a question and the answer could somehow be numerical, it'll be three
0: for me. You
1: know? Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, like when you I I, I had three of my favorite books in mind, but I gave you one. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like it's a balanced it's a balanced you know like when you're all when you're one person you're all alone you know and when you're two people you're just having a conversation back and forth but the moment you have three into the dynamic it's the first time you get this really dynamic interaction yeah where you know a and b can communicate b and c can communicate a and c can communicate you can all communicate like it's a magic number yeah it's like a good story mm-hmm. beginning middle and end so what I find is that when you simplify in landscape design or homesteading or organic farming, when you simplify you end up having more that happens and you succeed and that the rule of 3 is a is a is a nice way of kind of grounding that. You know, I want to have a diversified farm. I'm going to have three enterprises. You know, I'm going to have an orchard and I'm going to have an organic garden and I'm going to have bees. Or okay. I, you know, I'm going to have a small garden and I'm going to have, you know, a little edible landscape along the front. And I'm going to, you know, do cut flowers, you know, or something like like that. And it really just grounds things. So simplify to succeed.
0: Nice. So a couple of things that I want to handle before we actually get off. I want your other two books.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So what are they? I'll put you on the spot. So I
1: have the... Yeah, so, so I have two books that are currently published. One is The Permaculture Market oh, no, Garden. No, no,
0: no, that's not and what I'm talking about. the other talk- is The Edible. Yeah, no, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I want to hear is you said you had three favorite books and you picked one. I want to know what the other two are.
1: Oh, <laughs> the other two books. Okay. Yeah, my other two books. Okay, so because uh, I was actually going to then tell you that I had 12 outlines for 12 different books. So which one oh. do you want me to tell you about? <laughs> <laughs> So on the fun side of things it would be the Hobbit. Oh,
0: you know, I've good. always uh-huh.
1: loved that book and loved the journey of it and that's just a childhood favorite for me. And then I also really love the book The Man Who Planted Trees.
0: Oh and my god, yes. It's,
1: yeah, it's just a beautiful story and the, the you know, the movie's great too and so for me those those are sort of there's you know, a little bit of fun and fantasy and fiction, but also still the story of a journey and there's a lot of ecology yep. in the Hobbit, you know? Oh yeah. And creatures and mystical forests and giant bees and I just I love it. It's a great tidy little uh, book. Uh, and then those other two, you know. Yeah, they,
0: exactly. Nice they are
1: they touch into so the the Education of Little Tree is about mentorship.
0: Oh, that's what it's good.
1: really about. It's yeah. about mentorship. Mentorship in the old way. And the man who planted trees is about how many small actions can make huge results. You know, he just planted, you know, acorns every day of his life and he recreated just beautiful ancient forests and it changed the way that people were. And that's what I believe we can do by planting these edible spots in our communities. We actually will shift and create a paradigm shift and end up in an ecosystem culture, a culture where people are directly supporting the ecosystem services around them that are integral to our resilience and health and well being.
0: Amen to that. All right, I'm going to sidestep this whole thing. I've not done this before, but I want to do a shout out to your dad, Dirk. And I'm hoping that he'll listen to this message. And it's just tacked on the yeah. end of our, of our podcast today. But when I discovered permaculture in 1991, my permaculture design course, and a permaculture design course is a 72-hour course that you take. It's basically an introdu- It's a 72-hour introduction to permaculture. Dirk was one of my teachers in my permaculture design course mm-hmm. back way back in 1991. And what I want to tell you, Dirk, is that it changed my life forever permaculture for me was a, when I learned it and understood it, it was like, wow, this is the way I have thought for the first 30 years of my life. There's actually something I can call it. So Derek, you made that big of a difference for me 30 years ago. So thank you to your dad, Zach.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I I really appreciate that. And I know he will too. Yeah, That's so beautiful, you know, and you know, building on that legacy, we're actually this fall, we're launching our first 144-hour ecosystem design course
0: or EDC Uh
1: at Ecosystem U. So we're really psyched about that, too. So I'm sure, you know, listeners who have done PDCs before will will love to kind of get into the patterning and the focus of the layering that we offer with this sort of thing. Nice. Maybe I'll bring my dad on as a special guest.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That
1: works.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us on the show for this amazing conversation, Zach.
1: Yeah. It's been a pleasure.
0: And how do we find out more about your books, your classes, all that stuff?
1: Well, yeah, definitely. You know, you can hop onto the the website for the ecosystem design course. It's just ecosystemu.com. So ecosystem and then the letter U for university.com. And that's a great way of touching base there. And, you know, you can learn more about my landscape work at zachlokes.com. And the institute, as we mentioned, is EcosystemSolutionInstitute.com. And feel free to reach out to anyone who's doing innovative projects or anything like that. Feel free to send us a note. You know, we always like to just see what people are doing and be in touch. And maybe there's some people out there that are interested in getting involved and creating an an EPI site. And then we would love to, you know, mentor and sponsor and help that along as well.
0: Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Well, once again, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org.